0: Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now.
1: What could be better than talking with someone who has a passion for human beings? That's what we're going to do today. We're going to be talking with Susan Desenji. She is a therapist. She is an author. She is a person who knows a great deal about emotional resiliency. We're going to learn about that and how you can improve yours and why that will make your life a much happier place to spend your days. So stay tuned. Welcome to Save Your Sanity Podcast. I'm Dr. Roberta Shaler. Are you living with the chaos, confusion, and uncertainty that a toxic person loves to create? Is a partner, parent, ex, sibling, child, or coworker causing you to second-guess yourself? That can be crazy-making. I'm here to help you save your sanity. So let's get down to it and figure some things out now. Stay tuned. (laughs) Well, welcome. I'm so glad you're here. If you're returning, I'm so glad you found value and you came back. And if this is your first time, i look forward to you joining us regularly. So we're going to talk today with my friend Susan Desenzi. She is a therapist by trade but she has deep 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 wells of information and experience in dealing with trauma hidden trauma and emotional resilience to lift ourselves out of it when it's happened to us so welcome to the program Susan.
0: Oh thank you so much Roberta for having me here it's an honor to be here.
1: Well, I've been looking forward to this because, of course, we therapists like to talk to one another. Um, And it's, it's, in my opinion, a collaboration because when those of us who have spent our days learning how to make human life emotionally better, Mm. then we can bring information from all sides of that question. and, And that's exciting to me. So tell me what led you to your work?
0: And I 100% agree. It is such a collaboration. Um, How I became a therapist. I actually wanted to be an actress when I was four years old. And that had been my passion throughout my whole life, up to the point that I decided to go back to school. But I watched my uncle struggle in the the theatrical world. Mm -hmm. And he was quite good. And I think that because of some of the experiences that I had had as a child and a young adult, I'm a six time sexual assault survivor, and I did not realize that I wasn't really thriving and I was really barely surviving. That when I saw him struggle, I kind of became very fearful and stuck in my own emotional uh, stagnation, and it stopped me from kind of pursuing that. Mm.
1: Well, I think we're so impressionable at four years old. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, I don't think people realize that often that our brain grows until we're 30 years old, that development. And what's wow. going in there before we really have language or experience or all can really permeate our being. What's your experience with the trauma of early life or the experiences even, whether there was trauma or not, of helping people recognize what got buried in them at an early age?
0: Well, as I then continued to grow and I started to recognize that I wasn't following that passion, but I had this incredible passion for people and I had this awareness also at age four of who we were at the core from a very spiritual level. Mm -hmm. And so when I saw people, I really saw soul. I saw through them. I I understood what was driving them or what, what they were thinking and feeling without, you know, being like a mind reader or anything like that. I just kind of knew. And so as I continued moving forward in my life and growing into my 20s, until the last assault, I was very stuck in insecurity and fear but didn't know it.
1: Hmm. What, what do you think made you attractive to these people who were uh, wanting to transgress your boundaries?
0: Oh I think because I was just so open and vulnerable and willing to just be me and you know love and say hi and trust and just really kind of not think that there really could be people with poor intentions.
1: Who would ever think that at four years old? We don't think that unless we had parents like that. Right. I mean, yeah. that, that's, that's the whole thing. If we had g- good parenting, then we are open and, and we're yeah. we're welcoming and we're joyful and, and all of those things that would make us available, yeah. right? more available. So if you're listening and you've had some early trauma in your life and it didn't come from your parents – know that that may have been because you felt so safe in the world that you didn't think there were unsafe folks around.
0: (laughs) Right. Well, and that's what was very confusing to me because I had this spiritual awareness of this lovingness and this purity of people at the core. And yet I was seeing uh, experiences and, and different adult interactions that felt, as I said then, because I didn't have the language icky or uncomfortable in my body. And I couldn't really ascertain what that was. I couldn't make sense of it. And so as I continued to grow, and I just kind of held on to this trusting and this lovingness, I think I just never saw those things coming. And so then that did a number on me emotionally and mentally, mm-hmm. because I really started to dive into that place of insecurity and fear and worthlessness and that I had no value.
1: Well, those hollow giants in our life, those adults, once they turn on us, then we take it on. And especially in our brain development, if before the age of somewhere between six and eight, when we when we begin to get parietal and prefrontal lobe development, that's the only time that we get outside of ourselves and start saying, oh, maybe it's not all my fault. Maybe I'm yeah. not causing everything that's happening. So when trauma goes into us at an early age, before that development, it can turn us just like you were describing.
0: Yeah. And it was very, very challenging. And it really wasn't until the last experience when I was 28 years old where I almost committed suicide that I i don't know what happened, but I made the decision. There was a childhood memory that I recalled of me standing in front of a mirror recognizing my infinite capacity and my infinite possibility and that I knew I was meant for more. And so I think I just made a conscious decision at that moment to combat from that point forward. And I I put the suicide letter away and I really committed to stepping into the healing process and how to really begin to thrive. Because Mm. I think that was the point where I recognized I wasn't even surviving.
1: Wow. Let's all take that in for a moment because other people have been on the brink of suicide. And we always have a choice at that moment, but sometimes it doesn't feel like we do. And if we recognize that we do have a choice, we can either focus on what we've come from or focus on what we're going toward. And maybe there are more options than death to move toward. So what do you think the greatest learning of that experience is that you take with you to this day?
0: Really that in that moment that I made that decision, I truly, truly believed, although I didn't embody it completely throughout every fiber of fiber of my being at that point, but I, I knew that I truly believed that anything really was possible. And that we were, I could believe in myself, even if I didn't feel like others around me did or had. I could step into a power, even if I felt powerless in other parts of my life. And so that began my journey of really finding therapists and coaches and mentors and teachers who could help me in all the facets of my life, where I felt extremely insecure and and worthless and, and, you know, like I had no value whatsoever, and really begin to step into that full power.
1: And that to me, and certainly expand on it, I'm sure you can, is the beginning of understanding what emotional resiliency truly is. Yes. Right? That that there is a give and take. There is a bound and rebound. That there is good and bad. There are polar opposites. And you can move between them and among them.
0: Absolutely. And I think that has been the biggest challenge. And I think that to answer your question in the very beginning of what kind of led me to my work, Was that recognition through my own healing journey that I was a little bit frustrated and fed up with finding people that I thought could help me because maybe they were in this particular capacity, but they were really trying to get me to, you know, as we say, like move past it, but in a way that was almost like inviting me to try to forget about it.
1: Yeah, go around it.
0: Yes. And I kept saying, but it is a part of me and it's a part of my experience and it doesn't have to become who I am, but why can't I learn to walk with it? And they'd look at me like deer in the headlights, like almost like, Oh, you're still wanting to be a victim. You're still wanting to hold on. And I'm like, no. And, yes. and so then I learned how to walk with it kind of on my own and through some help of some very amazing and beautiful people. And then I took that into kind of my life and said, how can I help others? Because I know I'm not the only one.
1: Well, and you're certainly not. I mean, in my practice, I'm dealing with people who have been raised by or partnered with or is an ex of or is a sibling who is a very difficult, toxic person. Mm. (laughs) And you go through that journey. It becomes part of you. It's not something that you can just you know, jettison. Yeah, right? It's very organic and integral to who you are. And when someone recognizes that, You can, in fact, embrace emotional resilience. It isn't the end of the world when someone doesn't like you or doesn't want you, rejects you, discards you, devalues you. It's not the end of the world when someone um, makes an exit from the world that was unexpected and you feel devastated, but it's momentary devastation. You can move through it. You know, I often use this image, Susan, as I say to my clients, just imagine... That you're sitting on a hillside up in the mountains, but you're sitting on the incline, and you look down over this amazing vista, and you see a, a large field of wildflowers, and you say, "I want to st- I want to go and be in those wildflowers." So you start on your journey, you fail to notice that between you and the wildflowers is a forest. And so as you walk through the forest, it gets darker and darker and darker. You start questioning, should I have done this? Is this the right path for me? What was I thinking? I was safe up on the hillside. Yeah. And then if you can remember that it's darkest in the middle of the forest and it starts getting light and there are those wildflowers, then you have the emotional resilience and the the belief in yourself that I can walk through this and get to where I want to be.
0: And I think that's such a beautiful visual and a beautiful analogy to really how I've always seen it in my own life and and a lot of times with my clients. Thank you for that. Um, Because the truth is, is that I had to recognize in that darkest moment of almost making that decision to end my life in recalling that childhood vision and seeing and remembering myself standing in front of that mirror, I recognized in that moment, I think something you just said that I don't think I've realized till this moment, putting it into words per se, that it was, it wasn't just that I saw myself in the mirror and remembered anything was possible. It was that I believed in myself and that I recognized that all things are possible because I wasn't clouded by that darkness. I just, I kept going. Mm. And then what happened between then and 28 was I had learned to retreat and shut down and stay in that darkness and believe that that was me. And so, yes, what I found then through my career and in my own personal life is that when I get caught in the humanness of us and I get a little, you know, those gremlins in my head, and I become a little bit trapped or stuck in some experience for a moment. I step back and I recognize wait a minute. This is part of the beauty of being able to continue moving forward. And it's temporary and it's fleeting, this darkness in this moment. Just take a breath. Remember, you've got this. Lovely. And keep moving forward.
1: Yeah. Oh, so good. So good, and so possible. You know, we're really talking about possibilities today. You know, Susan just said that there were polar opposites possible, and she had the opportunity to choose between the two. And when she recognized the power of choice, of Of her value of her possibilities of what she could overcome or change or go toward or whatever it was that all of a sudden life became an adventure and that's so important I want everybody to to know that I'm talking with Susan Desenzi today you can find her at SusanDesenzi.com and you're probably wondering how do I spell that so (laughs) that's S-U-S-A-N D-A-S. C-E-N-Z-I dot com, or Z-I dot com, if you're among my compatriots from Canada and the UK. (laughs) So, Susan Desenzi, and she is a psychotherapist, and she is a transformation and business coach. She's also an Amazon-ranked number one best-selling author in a collective book, and and that's an important thing to do. She spent the last 27 years guiding her clients to step into the infinite possibilities and highest potential of what is possible for them when they become emotionally resilient. And you can see in the show notes so many things about Susan, and you can click on it. So if you're listening in your car, don't worry, it's waiting for you when you get home or you stop, (laughs) and you can read the show notes. So you have an interesting take on the Polarization between trust and fear. And I think it's so fascinating that I'd like you to share that if you would.
0: Yes. Well, you know, I've often said that when we, you know, fear, we have no trust. And that when we trust, we have no fear. And what I recognized throughout my life was that I came into this world trusting. I didn't have these experiences yet where I'd learned these meanings and and these associations and these emotional labels. And so I just kind of lived my life through this very innocent, open, vulnerable, loving, wow, the world is amazing and people are beautiful. And then as I had experiences and I learned to attach the meaning to it and I developed the fear, I started to notice that I wasn't trusting. But it you know, obviously it took me many years to realize this. And so now when I move through my life and, and, and my biggest hope is for those around me, whether I'm helping them professionally or they're personally in my life as friends and family and so on, I just really hope that people recognize that when we start getting into fear and we're losing that trust, that it's oftentimes something that we've experienced that's coming up, that's causing us to lose sight of our ability to just connect from a very deep, open, trusting, loving level.
1: Mm-hmm, beautiful. And I, I mean that, uh, that's not just something to say. I think okay. it's beautiful when we can turn our mind to those kinds of things, because so much of the narrative that we tell ourselves about life is something we made up. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But, um. A long time ago, there there was a a book I've forgotten. Um. It, oh. I th- Guiding yourself to a new reality. I think it was called. And in uh, there, they they gave a acronym for the word fear, and the acronym was false evidence appearing real. Yes. And certainly. Sometimes it's it's very real. It's not just appearing real. Um, So I'm not talking about that when I say these words, that if we have come from a background that it hasn't been a safe world to be in, Mm -hmm. then sometimes we'll start assuming that other things are going to happen to us that may or may not become reality. So in that assumption, we are seeing the downside potential in most things. And that opportunity to turn that around is a big one. So I know that between that dichotomy that you talk about between trust and fear, that you also have an interesting dichotomy for us to talk about, which is you believe that emotions are illusions and the truth is a lie. So I, I just can see you sitting there uh, fighting with yourself in your head. <laughs> and so, so uh, tell us, let that out. Tell us oh. why why you say that emotions are illusions and the truth is a lie.
0: Yeah, and and that gets into kind of like a, a much deeper thing, but but kind of in a very quick fashion. I believe that emotions are that energy in motion, right? That biochemical energy in motion that we then have an actual feeling like a physical sensation you know the tightness in our chest and the butterfly feeling in our tummies and you know the 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 tight jaw and we've learned then to associate a label with it based on the context of a story and so then we give it like it's called nervousness or it's called scared because i used to ask friends and family and my clients all the time have you ever felt that butterfly feeling in your stomach And they're like, of course. And I'm like, well, what do you call it? And I would get nervousness, scared, in love, happy, excited. And I started thinking, how can you have the exact same physical sensation feeling, but you call it something different? Mm -hmm. And so I started to recognize that it's about those stories. It's about the narrations. It's about the experiences and the labels that our experiences taught us to give these things. And so then it's like, well, where is the truth alive then? Well, because if I've learned that in this context, this is always going to be nervousness for me, but then some experience in my future, I found I wasn't nervous. Then does it make that other set of experiences where I'd always experienced nervousness always true? Of course not. It's dependent on how we view it and their perception. So, it's a a little harsher to say emotions are illusions and the truth is a lie because that seems so absolute. But that's generally conceptually the idea.
1: Well, it's a wonderful, a wonderful thing to think about, a wonderful polarity to think about and a wonderful juxtaposition to think about. Because, you know, I think that we don't, we don't stop and recognize that when you think about your physical body or you read Candace Perch or you do things like that, our biology of belief, that Baba. that yeah. you understand that okay, when I'm having this physical feeling, it's identical to being really excited or really afraid. Mm-hmm. Like the body is going through the same motions. Now, which one of those would I prefer to identify with and which one keeps me safer and why? Because it's the why it keeps me safer. You know, maybe I've had a traumatic beginning and I want to talk about trauma. Um, Maybe I've had a traumatic beginning that has put me into fear. So a stress response to me takes precedence over excitement because excitement might lead to my not being vigilant. Mm-hmm. So I decide to stay in, in that stress response equals fear. Yeah. But I can learn that maybe I'm not in the same situation with the same humans that caused me to see everything that way. And now I can allow myself excitement. So let's just go back for a minute and pick up the topic of trauma. Okay. Because you've already mentioned that you have survived sexual abuse, and therefore, trauma is embodied to a degree. And then we have to take the opportunity to say, that's part of my experience. When did I have the experience? At what stage in my brain development did that get? put in there Mm -hmm. and how much real estate am I giving it in my life now when none of those people are around and I'm a big girl and I can put on my big girl panties and I can have radar that said that person is not safe to be around. So I'd like to hear your take on that.
0: Well, you know, my experiences were relatively young, uh, a majority of them. Uh, There were four instances uh, six instances over four periods, I should say, mm-hmm. five, nine, and fourteen. Those were five of them. So by age fourteen, I had experienced five experiences and instances of assault, and none of them were family. There was no incestual situation or anything like that. And so, I and and at nine years old, when police were involved. It was a different time and era back then. I actually believed until I was 16 that a lie detector machine was a box that you take a piece of paper and feed it into and either a yellow light or a green light come up and that says truth or lie. So now I'm also experiencing uh, not being believed in, heard, and a distrust from authority figures who I had been taught to trust and believe in. And it wasn't their fault. They were doing what they knew best at the time. And so by the time I was 28, when the last instance happened, there was a whole host of things that had been kind of subtly and subconsciously and somewhat consciously going on in my own mind and thoughts and beliefs about the world and myself around me that said, I know that I'm safe. And yet there's that other part that says, but I thought I was safe then too, and look what happened. And I thought I could trust and look what happened. So there was this, just for me, there continued to be this push and pull that I just really couldn't work through.
1: Mm-hmm. And I think that, that one of the things that sometimes helps people when they realize they're in that situation is to realize that we have that skill in our toolbox now I know what to do if somebody comes at me or I know what to do when somebody is showing purient interest in me. Mm -hmm. And so I can start to say to myself, I can count on myself that I have that tool in my toolbox, but just like every other tool, I don't have to have it in my hand every day, all day.
0: Yes. Yes. And I think, you know, there was a a tremendous amount of guilt, if you don't mind not sharing details, but the, the last instance... There was a knowingness that there was danger. And I was actually working as a bartender at the time. And so there was this feeling and this knowingness. Now, I don't recall having a specific thought like, oh, there's going to be something really bad that's going to happen tonight. But I instinctually knew. And then a comment was made by this person a little later in the evening that really struck me in a very fearful and uncomfortable way and i did purposely stay away from that patron i had to do my job but that patron more so and all the people that he was with at that whole end of of the establishment doing the minimal of what i had to do but i had tremendous guilt for years after because i said i knew and I didn't listen. I didn't trust that feeling. I made an excuse and justified, and said, "Because of the past, I'm just being silly, and I'm being afraid."
1: Mm-hmm. And also, there, there's a when something happens to us when we're little, and our brain isn't fully developed, we take that and we don't grow it up. We don't grow that feeling up. We don't grow that understanding up. It's still stuck in there as a feeling. Yeah. So I understand completely what you're saying, and I hope everybody listening does too. And give yourself that latitude. You know, if if that has happened to you, don't beat yourself up because you didn't listen. Learn, learn to, to say to yourself, I'm listening now. Right? You yes. can only move forward. So if we spend any time giving uh, any of that real estate in our mind to beating ourselves up, we are not using that energy to move forward. And it's important for us to get some help if we need to do that. And Susan, of course, is a, a therapist and available. And we can also talk. So this is important stuff. So let me remind you again, I guess, is Susan Desenzi. And you find her at susandesenzi.com and we'll more time, that Susan S U S A N D A S C E N Z I dot com. So, early early trauma often leads us to get into relationships at maybe a marriage, maybe a long time partnership that we don't really realize we're revisiting the trauma because it looks good in the beginning and it turns into something nasty. Did you have that experience?
0: I did. And, you know, what's interesting is I did not have that experience very often. So I had some very healthy and solid relationships. And at the same time, as I continued to grow into my young adulthood in my early 20s, I found as strong and confident as I thought and believed I was, I really wasn't. And I attracted and married a verbally and emotionally abusive alcoholic. And although he he truly had a heart of gold, he was in his illness, he was in his insecurities and fears, and it was very emotionally and verbally abusive. And instead of being that strong, confident woman who I believed I was, as I would hear it and experience things with him, I just made excuses for it. And I found myself and my insecurities getting worse and worse and me shrinking and shrinking and just kind of becoming this very non, you know, this very submissive, non-defensive, wouldn't fight back or use my voice. It was crazy to me. And yet I completely understood why.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, you know, my work is all about... helping people understand uh, the toxic relationships they're in or they have been or were raised by it. And of course, you know, again, going back to brain research, if this is what you see as normal, this is what's been modeled to you, and this is what gave you your view of yourself, um, then we want to feel like maybe it's something I'm doing. Maybe I could be better. And we start making ourselves into a pretzel or becoming a doormat or, you know, what can I do to keep this person happy? And we start not realizing that we're falling off the edge and into the abyss of going into their crazy as opposed to yeah. saying, Hey, this is not okay with me.
0: Yeah. Well, and 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 that was what another thing that was so challenging for me and confusing was that I was raised I was very blessed to be raised in a very loving family unit. Two older brothers, very close to parents who loved each other and were married and had a good relationship and were communicative and loving with us. Great experiences in all those other arenas, except because of the assaults and because of some of the other things I experienced as a child, like we all do, moving a lot or this, that, and the other, the police situation when I was nine, just little things like that that built up. By the time I met my ex-husband when I was 21, believing I was strong and confident, and yet not having a voice to stand up to this, I was, I was like, who are you? Like, why are you not speaking up? And yet, as time went on, I found I just couldn't,
1: mm-hmm. you know. What was it that took you to the place of um, being able to say enough already?
0: It truly was that night I wrote the suicide note. My son was just a tad over to the the last instance of assault that had happened just prior to his second birthday. And then my ex-husband being the hijackle, which I love that I love that phrase in that word. It's so apropos, being the hijackle that he was, he made a comment about the assault that cut me to the core. And On top of my mindset of, wow, this has happened six times, and I'm married to this man, and I feel trapped, and all of these pieces, it just, it became too overwhelming, and I sat down to write this note, and yet I think, Roberta, at the same moment I knew, that really wasn't my true intention, Mm -hmm. you know, And, and then in rereading it, it was that, okay, here we go, Susan, if you're going to do this, go do it. But if you have, if, if you're not going to do it, then jump off the cliff of your life in a beautiful, bold, intense way and never look back. No matter how painful or difficult the journey becomes from this point forward, just keep flying. And, mm-hmm. and I, that was really what made me feel like I had the strength to finally address a lot of those pieces that I didn't even really know were there.
1: Mm-hmm. You know, I have this visual of, as you're saying that, that you went into this deep valley and all of a sudden you realized that you had an opportunity to climb back up to the top of the mountain. And that's such a beautiful thing. Now I want to challenge something, Susan, if you don't mind, and if you do mind, just tell me, not you don't want to answer this, but how do you put together these two statements you made, heart of gold and emotional abuse in the same person
0: because I think we were not our experiences and and it's it's not that doesn't define us and so you know the trauma and the abuses and the challenges that we face to me, I have truly always believed without realizing it I didn't live it I didn't embody it that these were learning experiences these were opportunities for me and all of us to step into a place where we could remember who we really are at the core that that infinite love that infinite possibility this heart of gold
1: mm-hmm. I'm, I'm going, to, going to reiterate my question and preface it with this. I was talking about how you described your ex-husband. You said he had a heart of gold and he was an emotional abuser. And I think this is a very important point because there are people who go around saying someone had a heart of gold while they have some kind of dysfunction that causes them to hurt people on a regular basis. So I don't believe they have a heart of gold. I believe okay. that they, they have a public persona. Like in a lot of my work, Susan, I say that hijackles paint a public picture of perfection and mm-hmm. at home create a private place of pain. Mm-hmm. So there is this heart of gold perception. And yet if you really knew them and what you're going through at home every day with them, no heart of gold. I mean, amazed, sometimes it'll show up when they really want something, and they're probably at peace with the rest of their lives. Yeah. But they don't basically have a heart of gold. They have a heart of gold they like to show to the world, right. and the rest of the time, you're fair game.
0: I and I apologize. I misunderstood the question. I it how so? How did I say this about him? I don't know. I suppose if I look back on things now, I was in my 20s then, and I'm now 55. So many years have passed, and he's long been deceased. Um, I believe that what I meant was when he wasn't drinking, he was genuinely a very loving, beautiful, caring man who wanted to see the best for people around him. And he was not abusive at all. And he was kind and more honoring and more considerate and more empathetic. And, and this was very confusing for me because I couldn't understand, not being very experienced, why when he would drink, he would become so incredibly abusive emotionally and verbally.
1: Okay, so there's the piece that I really wanted everybody to hear because hijackles are going to be hijackals at all times at home. Mm. The only time they're not going to be is the hot minute when they really want something and they go back to being that wonderful soulmate you thought you found in the beginning. Ah, okay. And you're hooked on the hope of that. But you were just so clear there that the it was the alcoholism that yeah. created that. So absolutely this person could have a heart of gold. And then when the alcohol intervened, everything was different. But there's the distinction between having a hijackal and having an alcoholic.
0: I see. Thank right? you for that. Right. Because I'm thinking, oh, he was a hijackal, but he really wasn't. I no. see the distinction. Yes. Wow.
1: So yeah. a hijackal is going to be a hijackal, alcohol or not. Right. Right? Yeah. Such an important thing. So yeah. I ju- I'm just so glad that that we got to that place. And there's so many things that we could be talking about further. And I hope you're enjoying this conversation. Know that you can make comments in the post below or underneath the video. And we'd love to hear from you and your your experiences with this. If you have other things you'd like me to talk about, topics and guests, please also put that in the comments or the posts. And uh, I'm always interested in meeting those needs for you. Thank you so much for being my guest, Susan.
0: Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Roberta, for having me here today. It's been such an honor, and I'm just so blessed to have been able to have this conversation.
1: Well, me too, because I think we've moved a lot of people's thinking forward. Um, And maybe just a little bit, maybe a new insight you heard today, or the words were a little different, and they landed better for you. Or maybe it opened your eyes completely to something that's going on. And that's the purpose of getting more and more emotional savvy. So you can find Susan at Susandesensi.com, You can find me at transformingrelationship.com. I'm always here for you. Susan's always here for you. And we we want you to have the best life possible. So feel free to connect with us. If you'd like to hear more, I do have another podcast called Save Your Sanity, Help for Toxic Relationships. You can find that at SaveYourSanityPodcast.com. So until we talk again and that you tune in, please feel free to share the show with your friends. They may need to know exactly what we're talking about today too. And in the meantime, take very, very good care of yourself because you're precious. Talk soon. Thank you for joining me on the Save Your Sanity podcast today. I hope you've had some new insights